I must Welcome to the Collector's Edition number zero episode of Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. Hang on to this one. You can sell this baby in 10 years and retire. But only if you buy five copies of every variant cover. Because that's how podcasts work. They're like the 90s comics boom and subsequent collector's market crash. Don't worry about any negative projections. Just keep speculating, 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 listener. Download this podcast five times, 10 times, 20. Start new accounts just so you can download it more. You'll be a millionaire and retire young. And don't worry, even if the podcasting industry goes bankrupt, they'll sell their top properties to movie studios. Then they'll make their own movies and be bought out by Disney. My name is Ben Rathbone, and I'm speaking to you from the Negative Zone, where I found myself accidentally transported to as the result of an experiment gone awry. I don't really like it here, if I'm being honest. Everyone is so pessimistic and cynical. It's really crushing my mood. Also, the acoustics here are horrible, so you can blame any audio imperfections you hear on that. Not the fact that this is the very first podcast I've recorded and edited. So what is this podcast about, gentle listener? It's actually not about comparing podcasting to Marvel Comics' rise and fall in Rise. No, this podcast is about comic book characters. And when they die. And when they come back. I know of this happening about like three, maybe four times. So we should get a few episodes out of this. No, obviously this happens all the time. So I thought it would be a cool idea to start a podcast where we look at the first appearance of a character, the issue in which that character dies, and the issue in which they come back. Now, because comic books are comic books, this could get pretty ridiculous real fast. So I came up with some ground rules. As far as death, in order to be considered a death, a character must meet one of the following requirements. Dies on panel, announced dead by reliable narrator, announced dead by the publisher, clearly intended to have died according to the writer or creative team. A character will not be considered to have died if they are a big bad not killed on panel but presumed dead in an explosion, etc. They are resurrected in the same issue or sequential multi-part storyline. The writer or creative team never intended it to be that character who died, but instead a clone or shapeshifter, a fact revealed soon after. They died in collective as part of some mass team, world, or universe-ending event that's quickly reversed. A character will be considered resurrected when they are returned to life with the following stipulations. They do not return to death within the same issue or sequential multi-part storyline. They are brought back corporeal, not a ghost. Finally, it's my podcast, so if I feel like ignoring any of these rules, I can. Deal with it. All right, and with all that out of the way, let's kick things off and talk about the first appearance of this episode's character, the Human Torch. What's your name, kid? The Human Spider. Human spider, that's it? That's the best you got? Yeah. Oh, that sucks. The sum of 3,000 will be paid to the terrifying, the deadly, the amazing Spider-Man! No, not, not that Human Torch. Long before the Fantastic Four, there was another Human Torch that debuted on the cover of Marvel Comics number 1. The year is 1939. The previous trip around the sun introduced us to the character of Superman in Action Comics number 1, officially kicking off what's referred to as the Golden Age of Comics. Meanwhile, in the world at large, the European arena marches towards the start of the Second World War. Alright, let's dive in. 
Marvel Comics, number one, by Carl Burgos. We open up to Professor Horton addressing the press, who all conveniently fit together at one table. He's got big, exciting news. You know that synthetic man he's been working on? You mean the exact replica of a human being? Yep, that's the one. Well, I did it, boys. The thing is, he kind of fucked up. Nothing big, just every time a synthetic man touches air, he lights on fire. So he has to keep him in this airtight glass cage. Craziest thing, right? But still, pretty cool accomplishment. The press does not find this cool. Not at all. In fact, they demand Horton, quote, Destroy that man before some madman can grasp its principles and hurl it against our civilization. Horton refuses, to which the press says, Oh yeah, we'll see about that. Maybe the power of the press will help change your mind. They start a smear campaign against Horton, and the dangerous being they dub the Human Torch that he's arboring. The power of the press does in fact change Horton's mind, and the engineer transfers the Human Torch from a glass cage to an airtight steel tube and buries it underground. Turns out the tube had a slow leak. Seriously, Horton needs to stop cutting corners, and the Human Torch escapes. He starts running around, causing chaos, lighting everything on fire. I'm burning alive! Why must everything I touch turn to flame? Firefighters try to hose him down, but it just tickles as the water mists into vapors. Starting to feel guilt at the damage he's causing, the torch dives into a random swimming pool to try to put himself out. Unfortunately for him, the pool belongs to a scoundrel named Sardo, who drains the pool, seals it up with an airtight glass covering, and ensnares Torch into a racketeering scheme, where Sardo uses the synthetic human to burn down his competition's warehouse. What a coincidence. While the warehouse burns down, Torch ponders why Sardo, who he thought was trying to help him, left him in this place to die. He escapes from the building with a superhuman leap, thanks to the flames surrounding him making him lighter than air. Then he goes and burns down Sardo's house. Sardo tries to stop him in various rooms with various devices, but the Torch just keeps burning through everything. Sardo, as a last-ditch effort, throws a sulfuric acid canister at the Torch, but it blows up immediately, killing Sardo. The fire chief shows up and tries to shoot Torch, but the bullet melts. During the battle, Torch discovers a tank of nitrogen can help him control his flame and do things like throw fireballs. Human Torch turns himself into the authorities, but the judge acquits him on all accounts of arson. Partly because Sardo was manipulating him, but mostly because the Torch would just burn down the prison anyway. They all get a good chuckle out of that. Torch reunites with Horton. But after the scientist makes a comment about profiting from his creation's fire abilities, the synthetic human says, F that, and, with a laugh and a mighty leap, crashing through the unburnt opening in the roof, the torch sailed through space like a comet. Okay, now this is the segment where I'll talk about my thoughts on the issue. In future episodes, I may talk to a co-host or guest, but for now, you've just got me. So, how do I feel about this issue? This was a much better read than I expected. A lot of old comics can feel dated and corny, and while there definitely was a lot of that, I enjoyed this Frankenstein vibe story of a scientist creation running amok, struggling with his own newfound consciousness and power. I can see the Human Torch's appeal. There's this existential angst around this dude that's just brought into the world whole cloth, but is immediately feared for a power he can't control, and he has to learn how to use it. Finally, the art on this issue is actually amazing. We obviously have better production value and printing techniques today, and, and that's noticeable, but Burgos killed it, honestly. The, the way the Human Torch looks in some panels, he's like this mischievous, demonic creature. 
Even though his face is covered with fire, you can still make out emotions and facial expressions underneath. There's this one panel in particular where he's standing amidst smoke and fire and he says, ha ha ha, it was easy to burn Sardo's home down. And, and you can just like see this big smile underneath his chaotic fire head. It's great. Let's fast forward 27 years, from 1939 to 1966. A lot happened, but most important to us, America entered the war in 1941, the Allies won against Germany in May of 1945, and then Japan in August. The world entered the atomic age as it saw the power and horrors of nuclear energy. Communist Russia became the USA's official poster villains during the start of the Cold War. In the comic book publishing microcosm, the Golden Age gives way to the Silver Age in the 50s, and in 1961, Marvel Comics ushered in a new era of superhero with Fantastic Four number one. What's the Human Torch been up to during all this? Since the last time we saw him, the Human Torch went from Frankenstein's monster anti-hero to full-blown superhero, most notably joining up with Captain America and other Golden Age superheroes to fight Nazis in World War II. The whole on-fire thing very much becomes a feature, not a bug, as he now has a vast array of pyrokinetic powers, can hurl fireballs, fire fire beams, fly, basically he's leveled up. He gains his very own sidekick, Toro, who seems kind of like him, but like younger and more plucky. Human Torch proves to be a war hero, with several notable accomplishments, like stopping the Japanese army from digging a tunnel from Japan to Alaska, rooting out Nazi spies, saving Winston Churchill, oh, and killing Hitler! Yeah, that's right, the Human Torch fucking killed Hitler in the Marvel Universe. That's canon! which makes this guy 5,000% cooler than I thought he was when I started this off. After the war, the Human Torch started fighting crime. This drew the ire of a guy named the Crime Boss. Yeah, a little on the nose, who used a science fiction potion to snuff out Torch's flames and put him to sleep in the desert, in Nevada. Years later, a nuclear bomb testing wakes Torch up, and the radiation makes him even more powerful. Because that's how this shit works in comics, okay? After fucking up the crime boss's day, the Human Torch finds out that while he was asleep, Plucky Toro has been brainwashed by communists. That's right, Captain America Winter Soldier fans, the Human Torch and Toro did it first. Eventually, the Human Torch finds out the radiation from the nuclear bomb that woke him up and made him super powerful has made him way too powerful, and so he has to go back to sleep in the desert. At this point, if we continue following continuity, there's a lot of weird Marvel time travel retconny stuff that for our purposes, we're going to ignore. He is asleep in the desert, guys. Which brings us to... Fantastic Four Annual, number four. Written by Stan Lee, drawn and colored by Jack Kirby, inked by Joe Sinat, and lettered by Sam Rosen. Three-fourths of the Fantastic Four, Reed Richards or Mr. Fantastic, Sue Richards or Invisible Woman, and Ben Grimm or The Ever-Lovin' Blue-Eyed Thing, are sitting at the table reading through fan letters. Reed takes a short break from being a typical mid-20th century chauvinistic husband to recount his memories of the original Human Torch during the war, when there's a sudden flash announcing the arrival of the new Human Torch, Sue's brother Johnny Storm. He's accompanied by his friend Wyatt Wingfoot and a gigantic pit bull named Lockjaw. Johnny is very upset because he's been trying to get Lockjaw to teleport him to a specific hard-to-reach place. Yeah, Lockjaw can teleport. He's a giant dog that can teleport. He's amazing. 
See, Johnny's long-distance girlfriend, Crystal, is an inhuman. They're a secretive race of aliens with superpowers that have moved away to, like, the negative zone or some place you can't just book a flight to. Johnny is a very impatient dog trainer and so hasn't been very successful with getting there. Reed gives Lockjaw some milk, but Lockjaw drinks too much milk and explodes. Just kidding. Lockjaw is fine, everyone, but Johnny is extremely frustrated with all this and decides he's going to break through the dimensional barrier to the Inhumans himself, using his fire powers. Meanwhile, Fantastic Four villain the Mad Thinker, or just Thinker as he prefers, is ready to unleash upon the world the culmination of his newest malevolent plot. After years of searching, the Thinker, an avid android enthusiast, has finally found the body of the very first android, the original Human Torch. Upon his release from a nitrogen chamber, the Torch comes to consciousness with limited memories, only recalling the events of Marvel Comics No. 1, and none of his heroics afterwards. The Mad Thinker capitalizes on this amnesia to sway the android to his cause. He also threatens to blow him up if he doesn't obey. Back to Johnny Storm, our heartbroken hero has flown to an uninhabited desert, where he plans to increase his body temperature to near Nova Force and burn his way to Crystal. But the young romantic is interrupted by his namesake, who whips up a tornado to knock the younger Torch off balance. Johnny tries to talk, but the android comes in for the attack again, and the two human torches face off against each other in a matchup of Flame and Inferno. Eventually, the older Torch gains the advantage, both because of a more developed firepower muscle memory and because Johnny used up too much energy before the fight. He's saved by the rest of the Fantastic Four, who arrive courtesy of Lockjaw. Turns out Lockjaw's teleportation works kind of the same way as the Eagles from Lord of the Rings do. It's mostly dependent on internal plot convenience. After grappling the android Torch into submission, the entire ensemble teleports straight into the Thinker's lab to confront the villain. The Thinker commands his AI computer Quasimodo to kill Johnny Storm, but the original Human Torch barrels forward, saying, I would rather return to the nothingness of an android's death than to stand idly by while murder is done. Quasimodo redirects its deadly force against the android, setting the Torch's own fire blazing out of control, destroying him in the process. The Mad Thinker uses this distraction to escape, leaving the Fantastic Four alone with the corpse of the original Human Torch, who sacrificed himself to save them. Reed says, Men may call him an android, but he proved to be as human as any. And on a more tragic note, Sue rejoins, The original Human Torch, reborn, only to die again. So, how'd I feel about this issue? I said I was surprised I enjoyed Marvel Comics number one, but uh, there was no surprise with this one. I knew I was going to like it. Stan and Jack Fantastic Four is always a good read. The run on this title is legendary, and deservedly so. Every issue introduces some high-concept idea that the team needs to contend with, and it's always bombastic, high-energy, and thought-provoking. Kirby's visual storytelling is so dynamic, you can flip through most of his Fantastic Four stories without any dialogue and still come out with a complete story, and this annual is no exception to that. Stanley's scripting is icing on the cake, but like, a really good quality icing on a stellar cake. Some of the characters are so well-defined through Stan's dialogue, you can hear the contrast between Johnny's hot-headedness and Ben Grimm's wise-guy craggy exterior. The Mad Thinker's manic speech pops off the page. That being said, Stan's lines and Jack's art don't always seem 100% in sync, because back in the day it was mostly art first, scripting second. So once in a while an overcomplicated explanation is given in conjunction to an otherwise elegantly simple panel, like when a fiery punch from the Human Torch is explained to rejuvenate Johnny Storm's own fire powers instead of just saying Johnny took the punch and punched back. Simpler is sometimes better, in my opinion. Also, this story definitely feels from a different time, so it can easily seem dated. 
if read from, you know, in, in a certain lens. But nonetheless, my earlier praise outweighs all this, and I enjoyed this issue a lot. So why did the Human Torch have to die? Well, what Jack and Stan are doing here is paying homage to a legendary character from the Golden Age of comic books. An important context to this story is the fact that the original Human Torch never really had an ending. The part about the nuclear bomb waking him up? That happened when the character was revived in the 50s in a series called Young Men. But that bit about the radiation causing his powers to grow exponentially to the point where he had to shut down? That was a retcon introduced in the 90s. So originally, the series Young Men kind of just petered off and the character went into limbo. So what Jack and Kirby are doing here is paying homage to a legendary character from the golden age of Marvel Comics and giving him the proper hero's ending he deserves. The old Human Torch dies to save the new Human Torch, passing the torch to a new generation of superheroes. Superman, how can you be... Alive? Toy Man sent me to the future. Then Vandal Savage and I fought some giant cockroaches and... It's complicated. Okay, time to fast forward again, this time 23 years, from 1966 to 1989, skipping right over the Bronze Age of comics into the Modern Age. Lee and Kirby's Fantastic Four run ended up lasting 100-plus issues over four years. Chris Claremont begins writing Uncanny X-Men in 1975 and would continue until a couple years in the future, ending in 1991. These runs and ones like it help set the precedent for longer-term storytelling in Marvel Comics. Ronald Reagan's two-term presidency is ending, with former VP George H.W. Bush taking the office next. We've long passed into the late stages of the Cold War, where anxiety of nuclear apocalypse reaches its highest point. Watchmen, the seminal comic book by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons, tapped into these emotions when it published from 1986 to 1987. The work deconstructed the very genre of superhero comic books as everyone understood them. So what's been happening in the Marvel Universe while the Human Torch was dead? A lot. But most relevant to our next story, a group of Avengers splits off into a secondary team in order to better meet the evolving dangers that threaten America and the world. There is now a West Coast team to complement the East Coast team. The West Coast Avengers' current roster consists of Hank Pym, The Wasp, Wonder Man, Scarlet Witch, and Vision. The U.S. government has installed Captain America knockoff U.S. agent on the team to keep them in line. The Vision is going through a rough time. Although he was built by the villain Ultron, he turned against his creator and joined the Avengers. He fell in love with team member Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, the two even having children together. But recent glitches have caused him to act very strangely, at one point trying to hack into and control every computer system on Earth. Call it a midlife crisis. This draws the attention of the United States government, who abducts and dismantles the synthesoid. Scarlet Witch and the Avengers retrieve and reassemble Vision, but there is a lot of damage that cannot be undone. While the Synthesoid maintains a sense of loyalty towards Wanda, many of his memories and virtually all of his emotions have been erased. One mysterious aspect of the Vision's history could hold the key to the full restoration of his identity. It's been suspected for a long time that the Vision wasn't built whole cloth, but instead his construction has some connection to the Marvel Universe's first intelligent android, the Human Torch. And with that, Avengers West Coast. Volume 2, number 50. Written and drawn by John Byrne and Mike McClon. Lettered by Bill Oakley and colored by Bob Sharon. We open to the impassioned pleas of a woman who spent every cent she owns traveling to the home of the West Coast Avengers, even going so far as to injure her hand while scaling the wall surrounding the headquarters. Guess they don't have, like, a door buzzer outside. 
You've got to help me and find out what really happened to my husband, she says. If you don't, I'm sure I'll go mad. It turns out the woman is Anne Raymond, the widow of the Human Torch's late sidekick Toro. Anne has been grieving her husband's death for some time, but hearing about the Vision's dismantling and return has given her hope. Upon hearing Anne talk about Vision, Wanda flips shit, and when Wonder Man tries to calm her down, she huffs off. Vision follows after. Anne tells her story to the remaining Avengers. The last time she saw her husband, he was on his way to the Human Torch's viewing and funeral. Turns out, this event was a ruse. This is confirmed by the Wasp, who says that while the superhero community did hold a service for the Human Torch at some point, there was no viewing since after the events of Fantastic Four Annual Number 4, Reading Company thought it would be best to leave the Torch's corpse in the Mad Thinker's lab. Um, sure. The funeral Toro went to was actually staged by the Mad Thinker, who used this as an opportunity to get close enough to drug and brainwash the former sidekick. Man. This is the second time this dude's brain took a bath. He's got to get a higher wisdom saving throw. The enthralled Toro came into conflict with Namor, the Submariner. Namor broke through to Toro, reversing the brainwash, at which point Toro tried to destroy the Mad Thinker's escape rocket, unfortunately dying in the process. Anne didn't learn about any of this until she went looking for her husband at the site of the Human Torch's funeral. There, she found only a long-abandoned cemetery. Anne later heard that the Vision was supposedly created out of the original Human Torch's body, but then after that read in the newspaper that, no, no, that had been retconned. Anne reasons that if this could be retconned, then maybe her husband's death could be retconned, too. Perhaps it wasn't the real Toro who died. While the Avengers are hazy on the soundness of this logic, they offer to help her any way they can, and give her a room to stay in. Hank Pym finds Wanda and Vision, and the team decides to follow up on the cemetery in Anne's story. Turns out there is a grave there marked the Human Torch, and when Vision phases through to the coffin underneath, the remains of the android are there intact. While Wonder Man wants to wait for Hank to come back with the proper papers to exhume the grave, Wanda isn't having it. Papers, she says. The Scarlet Witch will not be bound by human bureaucracy. Wanda directs her probability warping powers at the grave, and a burst of flame surges out from the ground. The Human Torch flies again. Wonder Man flies after, and in an extreme break of comic book tradition, the two don't find some misunderstanding to fight over. Instead, Wonder Man kinda just says, Hey man, wanna be friends? And Torch is like, Yep. Torch returns with the Avengers back to the West Coast, where the mysteries of his connection with Vision are finally solved. More or less. Turns out old Horton had engineered molds and spare parts that could be used to build more versions of the Human Torch. And this is what Ultron used to create Vision. That resolved... The Wasp gives Torch a new version of his old costume, and U.S. Agent invites him to join the team. The android starts to tear up from all the generosity, but struggles to play it off. Wasp tells him he's being silly, saying, This is the 80s. Men are allowed to show their emotions now. Yep, you heard it right. Toxic masculinity died in the 80s. Glad to hear it. The newly resurrected hero accepts the invitation and joins the Avengers. The Human Torch has joined the party. Okay, this issue was kind of weird. It wasn't bad, but, I mean, in some ways it kind of was. I, I talked about how Marvel Comics started to take on a longer-term storytelling format in the 80s, and this issue exemplifies that. With the other two older comic book issues, I felt like I was getting a complete story with a beginning, middle, and end. But with this one, a lot less so. The conclusion of resurrecting the Human Torch was kind of cool, 
but getting there was an absolute drag in flashbacks and continuity lawyering. And that's not even to mention the multiple other plot hooks that were introduced in this issue and then immediately left dangling. These are some scenes I left out of the synopsis. Immortus takes two panels to evil monologue to himself. Wanda envisions babysitter receives a forbidding visitor. Mild-mannered Mr. Preston begins to transform into Master Pandemonium. Iron Man returns from wherever he's been. And strangest of all, Hank Pym has shrunken down the Avengers Tigra and placed her in a cage in his lab until he can figure out why her cat powers have run amok. In hindsight, we're at a strange point in superhero comics where, you know, creators are starting to get a handle on what continuity kind of means for these stories. So it's been 50 years since the start of the Golden Age and over 20 years since Fantastic Four number one set the stage of, for the Marvel Universe as we know it. No one necessarily planned for these characters to last this long. And so there are a lot of contradicting storylines from separate creative teams that don't always piece together into a coherent history. Guys like John Byrne like to go back and untangle that web, which in a way could be satisfying, but doesn't make for the best story. Eventually, we'll get to a point where there's so much continuity that it's a losing battle to try to reconcile every bit of it. Creators will just find the bits they like and use them to weave a good narrative. Also, as it becomes more and more clear that these are characters that will be sticking around, writers and editors better realize the stakes involved, and the result is generally less silly nonsense that would mess things up later. Well, if I'm honest, not really. But right now, anyway, right now in the late 80s, we're, we're really in the thick of like this labyrinth of retcons and revisions, and... I guess we've never really escaped it. Finally, I'd be remiss not to mention that while this issue wasn't the best, the storyline as a whole eventually leads to probably the best cliffhanger in all of comics history, uh, a splash page of Master Pandemonium with two babies as arms. So look that up. So does this resurrection make sense? Not really. The whole thing with the shuffling location of the torch's body is a mess. Near as I can tell, this is what happened. When the human torch originally died in Fantastic Four Annual Number 4, the Fantastic Four just kind of left him in the Mad Thinker's lab. Then, sometime later, the Mad Thinker retrieves the body and places it in a coffin to convince Toro of the veracity of the viewing. Then, I guess, he lowers the coffin into a gravesite, complete with a headstone, to really sell the point home. But, like... Why? The Thinker's plan is headache-inducingly convoluted, but let's say he has his reasons. Why would the Fantastic Four not bury the Torch themselves, or turn him over to next of kin or friends? And why wouldn't they keep tabs on the corpse? Wouldn't they think the body of a super-advanced android is something that maybe shouldn't fall into the wrong hands, like it already just did? Is the next time Reed like talks to captain america is he just going to be like oh yeah we came across your old war buddy human torch he's dead but we decided to leave his body unburied because fuck it we have better things to do i don't know man why did the human torch come back seems like because john byrne wanted to add him to his avengers team roster which you know good enough for me also to tie up a bunch of weird continuity involving him and the vision the Human Torch would remain on the team for a few few adventures, but pretty soon leaves. You know, and he, he pops up here and there. I think he's in, like, space right now, so I guess that's cool. 
he does eventually die again, uh, but then he's resurrected again. Um, but one death and one resurrection per episode is, is going to be the standard for this show. So um, if we cover him again, we'll uh, have to do another episode. Look forward to it. Stay tuned. Um, all right. So that is the first episode of this show. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Maybe you were, you know, washing dishes or driving in your car to work or somewhere else that you would drive your car to. Maybe you were going to the beach. Uh, well, it's fall right now, but, you know, maybe you won't listen to this until the summer. That's the great thing about podcasts. They're timeless. You can listen to them anytime after I record this. It could be years from now. It could be, you know, in some post-apocalyptic wasteland in which you still can download podcasts or had download podcasts and you, you know, still have them on their on your phone that's dying, but the electrical grid has been destroyed, so you can't charge your phone and you're using your last 5% of your phone's charge to listen to this podcast. And I, I really appreciate that, honestly. There's other things you could do with your phone, but you've chosen to listen to my voice, and, and that matters to me. Thank you. If you're not in a post-apocalyptic wasteland, or maybe even if you are and the internet's still functioning, you know what you could do? You could rate this podcast. You could give it, for example, five stars. So if you're using a podcast app that allows you to rate this podcast and you liked it, please give uh, it a positive review. It would really help, and I would really appreciate it. And with that... Outro music.